Let's begin this afternoon by noticing what we read here in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, and verse number 7. Actually, we can pick it up in verse 6. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He, that is John, he was not the light, but was sent to bear witness of that light that was a true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. So here was a man sent from God, John the Baptist, who had a commission. And this commission was to convince the world that this man was the Messiah. We're going to see here that John was just a precursor and the forerunner, and when you realize the extent of his commission and what the responsibility God had placed upon his shoulders, you will see the significance of Christ's statement when he said, of all the prophets that have ever lived, there was none greater than John the Baptist. He performed no miracles, yet he was the greatest of the prophets because of the commission that had been given him and it was his job to make the world accept Christ. And indeed, he did that. He was one of the most powerful speakers and uh, servants of God during that time period. But he only came, as we read here, so the word would accept that through him, through John's ministry, the, word, the world would accept the light. They would accept the spokesman. Not the world in all, at all, but as it says here, that all, and you see the word in verse 7, you see the word men, that's in italic, so that doesn't belong there. It just means all through him might believe. That is, all who are called and who are, who are given the revelation, they might believe. Now in Luke, the first chapter, this is what again we read. Luke 1 and uh, verse number 13. The angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. Now, you remember, uh, they wanted a child, and Zacharias was a priest. And he said, Your wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. So not only was he given the commission, he was actually named by God. And you shall have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth, for he shall be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. And he shall go before him in the Spirit, that is, he'll go before the, before the Christ, he'll go before him in the Spirit and the power of Elias, or Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient better rendered the unpersuadable to the wisdom of the just and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. My subject this afternoon is a people prepared for the Lord. That's what God is doing, preparing a people for the Lord. Who are the people who are prepared for the Lord? How can we tell who they are? And can they evaluate themselves? 
Turn to Matthew 11, verse number 25. Matthew 11, verse number 25. One of the first characteristics that we can note about the people that God has called and are making his own and who are going to carry out a very, very important responsibility in the future is that they are not the accomplished and the wise and the brilliant of this world. Those are not God's people. What did Jesus, what did Jesus say? At that, at that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hid these things from the wise and prudent and has revealed them unto babes. People who do not have an arrogant attitude of self-knowledge, who are all puffed up, and who think they have the world by the tail and have the answers to everything. Those are not God's people. God's people who are, they are the people who are babes. That is, they are people who are willing to listen and to learn. You know, that's why your children should start out. And if they've been trained properly, that's the way they'll stay. I've seen little children by the time they're through two and three years of age, you're uncontrollable. You know why they're uncontrollable? Because their parents have not realized the responsibility of training a, children, a child properly. So, these are the children who are humble and yielded to God. Now, who are these people? 1 Corinthians 1, verse number 26. For ye, you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. It doesn't mean there are not included in the people of God the mighty, some mighty and some wise and some accomplished. There there are. But not many. The vast majority are not in that category. And uh, as we read here in 1 Corinthians 2.13, this distinguishes those who are the babes, the children of God. Which things also we speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual, or as it can be translated, interpreting spiritual things with the spiritual, that is, with spiritual men. Being able to talk together, as you heard this morning, I thought it was very well put, you're not here because we brought you here. You're here because God brought you here. And God brought you here by revealing the knowledge of the truth to you originally. And when you understand that truth and you recognize what is required, then you know what you have to do. It isn't anything that we do. You know, all we do is water, but God gives the increase. So this is an identifying feature of God's true people. Now, I stated earlier, there are some who are in this elite class that have been called. We've had some in times past, too. I remember a number of, uh, of, of, of men who, were, who had been very influential in the world and were still converted. But here's an example of how God's word strikes those who are truly humble and yielded, even regardless of the position they may hold in life. Acts the 13th chapter and verse number 12. Remember, we read here about Sergius Paulus, a prudent man. This is in Acts 13. This man was 
the, uh, as it is called here, a uh, prudent man, and he was uh, a very, very high-ranking official in the, uh, in the Roman government, actually a proconsul. And when you understand who a proconsul was, he was probably, you'd call him the head man in, a, in an entire Roman district, and he answered directly to Rome. And uh, his name was Sergius Paulus. Well, then this is when this uh, bar Jesus, this, uh, this uh, obviously a uh, man who inspired by the devil, tried to uh, thwart Paul, and Paul uh, smote him with blindness. And then what do we read here in verse number 12? Then the deputy, when he saw what was done, believed because of the great miracle Paul performed. Is that what it says? doesn't say that, does it? He did not believe because of the miracle. He believed, as we read here, he was astonished at the doctrine. Oh, it is indeed astonishing. You don't know anything about the truth of God, and you hear the doctrine for the first time. I tell you, it's shocking. You bet it is. That's what makes the truth the truth. You listen to this pablum that uh, you get in most religions, and you're not going to hear anything that's shocking. But you do when you hear the truth, and this man was astonished. So the first thing we can say about those who are prepared for the Lord, they are babes. That is, they're babes in their attitude and their mind, and they're willing to listen, and they're humble and yielded to God. Now the second thing. They recognize this world for what it is. An ephemeral temporary abode. It's only going to last so long, and they're only going to last so long. You know, you take, as I've commented before about teenagers, you know, teenagers think they're immortal. And the reason they do, they can't envision old age. They look at uh, old gray-haired fellows and some that are bald, and they think, boy, they are they ancient. Well, I can tell you, we were all teenagers at one time. Where did that time go? This life flies by very, very rapidly. Here today and gone tomorrow. I can tell you, that's what the people of God recognize. And you know what it tells them? It tells them they had better put their confidence in something besides what this physical life has to offer. That doesn't mean to say that there aren't there are not uh, blessings and advantages that come from the physical life. That certainly is a part of our human experience because we are human and uh, we certainly should be achievers. But if we have the wrong goal and our whole interest is set in this physical thing and we don't have a proper perspective with the spiritual, we're going to be very, very sadly disappointed. Psalm 90, verses 9 and 10. For all our days are passed away in thy wrath. We spend our years as a tale that is told. The days of our years are threescore years and ten. Seventy years is what God is allotted us. And if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is their strength labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. So, it goes very rapidly. When you get up to an elderly age, then you begin to realize 
Where did you spend your life and what were your priorities? And have you really worked on the self to overcome? I can tell you this very plainly. I don't stand here because I think I've overcome. I sat down at a Feast of Tabernacles a few years ago and a young man said to me, he said, Mr. Clark, he said, I've pretty well overcome everything. I was polite. I didn't laugh in his face. He meant well. But I can tell you, it's a lifelong struggle. So as a result, we have to recognize that the things in this physical life are only temporary. That's what the, that's what the cheap people who are prepared for the Lord recognize. Psalm 102, verse number 25. Of old thou hast laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the works of thy hands. They shall perish. They shall perish, but thou shalt endure. All of them shall wax old like a garment. As a vesture shalt thou change them, and they shall be changed. No matter what you see on this physical earth, it's going to vanish away. It, this earth is not going to exist the way it is at some time in the future. And I can guarantee you, we're a lot less permanent than the rock and, and, uh, and sand and things of that nature. I've often thought, what would it be like if some of these pioneers or these mountain men could come back to America today and see what it's like? They wouldn't believe their eyes. Most people don't know that the, the famous pioneer roads that were taken were Indian trails to begin with. And the Indian, Indians followed them because they were big game trails. And the pioneers and the mountain men followed them because they were already established trails. The pioneers and the mountain men would come back today and they'd be freeways and interstates. They'd be dumbfounded. Everything changes. But all of those someday are going to be gone too. That's how temporary this physical life is. Isaiah 40, verse number 6. That's a, that's a fact we must recognize. Isaiah 40, verse 6. The voice said, cry. And he said, what shall I cry? And here's what he was told to cry. All flesh is grass, and all the goodness thereof is as a flower of the field. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth. And that's life. So the people of God certainly recognize that. The children of God do. And, and, and what, what is the significance of recognizing that? The significance of recognizing that is seeing beyond this physical life, what this physical world is to offer, and it's looking beyond what the future is going to be for all eternity. If that is the orientation of a young person, and one is dedicated to that all of his life, he's got a tremendous advantage. Now, you can be called in the 11th hour. You can. But think of the blessings that accrue to someone that understands God's law. And we'll have more to say about that as, as we proceed. James 4, verse number 14. Whereas you know, well, uh, let's pick it up in verse 13. Go to now you that say to today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get green. We're going to do this, we're going to do that. Never thought about what the future may bring and what God may bring about. 
whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow. You don't know. How many people drive down the highway and don't have the slightest idea that this is going to be the last hour they're going to live? Killed in automobile wrecks. It happens every day. How many people are killed annually in this country? You know, people don't plan accidents. Accidents are mistakes. Sometimes not even caused by the person who gets killed. And he may be an innocent bystander. His life is snapped out just like that. Happens all the time. We don't know what the future is going to bring. Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth, appeareth for a little time and then vanishes away. That's what it is. How many of you can even name the maiden name of your great, 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 or let me even say great, great-great-grandmother or your great-great-great-grandmother. I, 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 I can only go back one generation. I can only name my mother's mother's maiden name. That's it. I don't know any more than that. It seems like the only people we remember and think thought of are people that we have been fairly close to or people we have known and sometimes our direct grandfather. But beyond that, how much do we know? That's how, that's how temporary this life is. Luke 18, verse number 24. Luke 18, verse 24. Here's another thing that those who are being prepared for the Lord recognize. Here was this young man who wanted to be a follower of Jesus, but he wasn't willing to pay the price. And he went away very sorrowful. And what did Jesus say? How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? I remember a young man a number of years ago, and uh, he was affiliated with one of the churches of God, and, and uh, he was telling around that he was going to be a millionaire by the time he was 30. That was his aim and goal, to be a millionaire by the time he was 30. Well, I'm quite sure he didn't make it. His marriage busted up in a divorce. His partnership fell all apart. And I doubt whether he ever became a millionaire. And if he became a millionaire, so what? What's that mean? Yet you'll find people that their whole life is just wrapped up in uh, being financially successful, and that's how they judge life by they judge life by their material possessions, uh, the kind of automobile they drive, the clothes they wear, and this type of thing. Those are the wrong goals, and the people of God do not allow themselves to be caught up in that. 1 John 2, verse number 17. Why are they not caught up in it? Because they realize that while we may be given physical amenities of one type or another, that's fine, that's good. We can enjoy those things, but let's have a proper perspective on them and not make those a God in their own right. And First John 2, verse number 17, the world passes away and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. People get so excited about the physical things in this life. All this excitement's going to end because the very thing that excited people isn't going to exist anymore. And the only thing that's going to abide forever 
are those who do the will of God. So that's the second factor I'll call to your attention. The, the people that are prepared for the Lord are those people who recognize the ephemeral, the ephemeral quality of this physical life and how short it really is and what it has to offer. In the, in, the, in the long run, what does it have to offer? You've all heard this saying, you can't take it with you. Is that true? He bet it's true. Okay, the third thing. The people who are prepared for God have a love for God. And we don't, we don't naturally love God. You know how we naturally feel about God? We resent God. I'll tell you, people who have this emotional feeling about God are people who don't even know what God stands for. I'll tell you what it reminds me of. It reminds me of people, either men or women, it works both ways, who fall in love with a movie star. Now, what do they know about that movie star? They don't have the slightest idea what this person is all about. They see this image on the screen and they think that that represents the person. That person is an actor. What would they be like? What would that person be really like if you really knew them and had to live with them? So people get all excited about religion at times because they don't have the slightest idea what the truth of God really stands for. And then when they hear the real truth of God, how do they react? And we have to realize, if you don't put God first, he's certainly able to take away any idol. If he's dealing with you, he'll, he'll he can take that idol away anytime he wants to. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse number 5. You have this principle clear back here in the Old Testament. It's not new. Here's what we read. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. How many of us, you know, let, let's really be honest with ourselves. How many of us love God with all of our heart? <coughs> with all of our soul. That is, with all of our rational being and, and, uh, and our interest. And with all of our might, with all of our vitality. Any of us reach that point yet? I can tell you I haven't. I don't stand up here because I'm the perfect example, and boy, I mean, I have made it and I'm in. Boy, far from that. I'm only here because God tolerates me, and I guess that's why. Deuteronomy 10, verse number 12. Now, Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee? Now, stop and consider ourselves in this context here. Do we love God to this extent? But to fear the Lord your God, that as to have respect for him and his commandments and his laws, to walk in all his ways, to love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You know, stop and think for a moment. Have we reached that point yet? It's a good question. Jeremiah 2. Verse number two. I think this example here is just really marvelous because it shows you the relationship, how God's comparing it to a relationship that develop, develops between a boy and a girl or a young man and a young woman at the time they're falling in love. And you know, I, I have to comment on this. You know, that very, very strong emotional attachment and feeling and interest and, 
and uh, giddiness. Uh, actually, it's 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 almost a form of insanity. It's a, it's a it's a mental sickness, is what it is. Because if you right, it really is. Uh, I shouldn't say sick, but it's, it's a mental condition. Let's put it that way. I'm all I'm always reminded of Jimmy Durante. A lot of you won't remember him, but he was a comic, and he used to sing that song. You know, uh, it goes like, you know, you're not you're not sick, you're just in love. And he used to get to the final line, and he'd say, "You're not in love, brother. You're sick." Well, that uh, feeling only lasts a certain amount of time. You know, one of the, I, a thing would be shocking and look strange to you if you saw an old couple and they were been married 30 or 40 or 50 years and they're just giggly and giddy and they carry on like a couple of teenagers just for the first time. Wouldn't you think, boy, what? Something wrong with them? <laughs> well, listen to this. Jeremiah 2, verse number 1. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord, I remember thee, the kindness of your youth, the love of your espousals, when you went after me in the wilderness. That's the kind of love that Israel had for God at one time. What happened to them? They couldn't maintain it. So it illustrates the kind of emotional thing that was involved when those people first uh, became were first delivered by God. And you stop and consider what happens when you're first called to a knowledge of the truth, and you go through your first love, don't you? You become so excited. It's the most wonderful thing on the face of the earth. It's a whole new experience. It's a whole new way of life. But then it levels off. And when the trials hit, you know, then the sobriety sets in. And it is a struggle. And that's what we go through in this physical life. But God wants us to have that kind of love, and that kind of love remain. Psalm 73, verse number 25. Psalm 73, verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is none upon earth that I desire besides you. Boy, how many of us could say that? That shows you the kind of a, of a feeling that was generated here. Uh, this was a psalm of Asaph. We really don't know who wrote this because uh, Asaph, Asaph was, was, was one of the writers of the psalms, but sometimes David would write the psalms and then give them to Asaph, and then they would be put into music form. And we don't, we really don't know the, the, the kind of music that this was, but uh, boy, I can say the music that we have is just marvelous. That, that music must have just been gorgeous. If you've ever heard Swiss yodeling, I've got, a, I've got a tape of Swiss yodeling, and I tell you, it will just absolutely, it's just one of those beautiful things. You never heard such harmony and such beauty in your life. And I played that in the office one day, and one of the girls there made a comment. She said, boy, if that's the way man can sound, what do angels sound like? Anyway, he said here, this, this was a part of this psalm. Obviously, he sung at one time. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Forever. Well, this is what we, we, should, we should recognize and we're striving to attain. 
Isaiah 56, verses 6 and 7. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Now's the time because there's going to be a time when he's not going to be near. You know what he says? Let those who are wicked be wicked still. And let those who are righteous be righteous still. That's going to reach a cutoff point. Call on him now while you can. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. You know, I've, I've made this comment before. We can accept the doctrine. If God opens our minds and the knowledge of the truth comes and we understand the doctrine and then we start obeying it, we can do that all right. It takes, may take a little resolve. We may have to go through certain trials and tribulations to go ahead and, and begin to do this and do that. And we make up our mind we're going to keep the Sabbath, we're going to keep the holy days, and we're going to do the things God requires. We can do that all right. How many of us can change our fundamental basic character? That's where the real struggle comes in. You see, what the Bible teaches us is a lot more than just the matter of obeying the doctrine because Paul said, take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. It's working on the self. It's recognizing where you're wrong. It's recognizing where your mistakes are. It's repenting of those mistakes and turning around and going the other way. It's a lifelong struggle. And sometimes it's very painful. But that's what we have to go through in this physical life. Forsaking our way and our thoughts. Because as God says, his thoughts are not our thoughts. And his ways are not our ways. Psalm 97. Psalm 97. Verse number 10. The sad part about human nature is it's very, very hard to take correction. To be corrected and to receive it is one of the most difficult things we face in this life. And so what do people do? The very moment they're corrected over something, they'll justify it, they'll make excuses for it, and they'll blame somebody else. You know, we read that David was a man after God's own heart. Why was David a man after God's own heart? I'll tell you why. When Nathan came to him and said, you're the man, what did he say? Oh, that woman made me do it. She's at fault. I'm sure before God. Is that what he said? He said, I have sinned. He admitted it immediately. That's what made David a man after God's own heart. How many of us, if we, if we recognize we've got some fault or sin, can just say yes? I'm human. I make mistakes. I've got just as many faults as the next guy. Why do I want to blame somebody else? I'm, you know, no matter what kind of a problem develops and comes up, we have to bear at least 50% of the responsibility. A lot of people aren't even willing to do that. That's what human nature is like. Psalm 97, verse number 10. You that love the Lord hate evil. That's what we should hate. We shouldn't hate another person. But we should sure hate evil. 
And I can tell you, we should hate evil in ourselves. And don't think we don't have plenty of evil within ourselves. The big problem today with all of society and civilization is the unwillingness to admit what human nature is. They always try to find some other excuse for man's behavior rather than recognizing what the Bible says. And the Bible says man's nature is rotten to the core. God made us that way. That's got to be overcome. That's what the Holy Spirit is for. If we're using it and praying and doing what we ought to do. All right, the next point. These are the people prepared for the Lord. They're the people who place a great value on God's law. They don't disparage it. They don't abuse it. They don't minimize it. They don't try to get around it. They're willing to admit what that law really, really means in their lives. And here's how Jesus summarized it here in Matthew, the 19th chapter, and verse number 17. He said to them, Why do you call me good? There's none good but one, and that is God. Because this man was trying to butter him up. And Jesus said, But if you will enter into life, keep the commandments. And he said, Which? Do no murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall honor your father and your mother. And you shall love your neighbors yourself. But you can break the Sabbath. Is that what he said? That's what all of ministers in the world say. Oh, he did away with the Sabbath. You see, when Jesus is talking about the Ten Commandments, he's, he's talking about the commandments, he's talking about the Ten. You know what people in the religions of this world, Protestant religions in particular, call the Ten Commandments? The terrible Ten. Let's show you the shape this world is in today. Psalm 119, verse number 97. Psalm 119, verse 97. Here's how David summarized it. Ask yourself the question, how do you feel about it? You know, what I've, what I've seen human beings is just, it's, just it's, it's, it's almost a pathetic thing. Because as you heard Mr. Carter pointing out this morning, how it's very, very easy to strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. And I find people, I find this invariably, they're busy criticizing other people, but they've got faults of their own in maybe a little bit different way. They're just as bad or not worse. They've got time to find fault with others, however. You know where they need to be looking? They need to be looking at the mirror at themselves. Quit worrying about other people. You better be worrying about yourself. Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day. <coughs> Is God's law your meditation all the day? You know, I can give you a good key as to how you can tell whether or not you're God-oriented. And that is, you'll find yourself in some circumstance where if you do something that you react improperly, you do something wrong, you know it's going to be a violation of God's law, and you check yourself and you don't do it for that very reason. Why can people who are supposed to be converted... Get mad and at, a, at the wrong time use profanity. It's a lack of control. 
I can tell you what it is. It's a lack of respect and it's a lack of fear for God's law. That's why you read here. In Psalm 19, verses 10 and 11, I think these two texts here are two of the most important texts in the entire Bible regarding God's law. And this is what people need to realize. That this is what the people who are prepared for the, for the Lord recognize. Here's what you read. Verse 9, The fear of the Lord is clean. That is to say, it's wholesome. And uh, it endures forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Now notice what you read here. More to be desired are they than gold. Yea, than much fine gold. Now you take people today, if they had to take a choice, somebody came up and offered you a big sack of gold, or a knowledge of God's law, what do you think people would take? Moreover, here's what's important. Let's recognize this. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned. You want to keep out of trouble? You want to keep your life from being miserable? You want all the benefits and blessings from God? Then I can tell you, you'd better pay heed to the commandments. Wherever by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. It's great reward. You don't know how much sorrow and experience that people go through in this life because they don't know God's law. I tell you the messes and the tragedies that happen because they don't know the simple thing about God's law. Well, God's people do. And they appreciate that law. And they know the benefits of it. But those benefits only come if we, if we recognize the value of it and we really make an effort to keep it. Do we keep it perfectly? No. I can tell you something. All my life I've had to fight a temper. And I'm still fighting it. I can have a lot more patience and, and, uh, and consideration for people who are not in my family, but boy, when it comes to my family, my temper is about that short. I wish I could overcome it. I haven't managed it yet. But I haven't given up, and I'm still trying. Yes? Just as we read here in Proverbs 6, verse number 23, for the commandment is a light that is a lamp, the law of light, and reproofs of instruction are the way of life. Reproofs of instruction. You know what reproofs mean? They mean you're being corrected and told what's wrong. Now, if we were all right, we'd never have to be told we were wrong, were we? So we all make faults. We all have mistakes. We all sin on occasion. That's why we need to realize the value and really appreciate and respect God's law. Psalm 119, verse number 96. I have seen an end of all perfection, but thy commandment is exceeding broad. What he's saying here is that it is absolutely so awesome, so all-encompassing. It involves everything. And then notice verse number 105. 
Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And verse 72. The law of thy mouth is better unto me than thousands of gold and silver. Gold and silver can't make you happy. So people prepared for the Lord are people who have a great a sense of appreciation and respect for God's law. The next thing. They strive to obey God. Doesn't mean they always accomplish it. But they strive for it. This is why Jesus said, you see, it's the easiest thing in the world to say, yes, uh, I, I'm a Christian. But Jesus said this. John 6, verse number 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? It's easy to call Christ the Lord, but what if you don't obey him? It's of no value. Malachi, we call God our Father, don't we? He is our spiritual Father. And we say, we read this in Malachi 1, verse 6, A son honors his father, and a servant his is his master. If I then be a father, where is my honor? What God says. If uh, I be a master, where is my fear? So those people didn't really have any respect and fear for God. They gave lip service to it. You know, this is the thing we need to look at ourselves. Are we just giving lip service to it? Or are we really striving to obey God? Matthew 7, verse number 21. Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. He that doeth his, doeth his will. And 2 John 6. 2 John 6. This is love. You see, what is? how does God summarize his commandments? He says, this is the love of God, that you keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. 1 John 5, 3. And then you read here, in 1 John 5, 6, this is love that we walk after his commandments. So people who really love God are really striving to obey God. And that involves not only keeping the commandments and obeying the doctrine, but that's, work, that's working on the self. Striving to overcome the evil pulls of nature that lead us in the wrong direction. And in 1 John 2, verse number 5, Whoso keepeth his word in him, verily is the love of God perfected. So the people that God is perfecting are the people who strive to obey God. Do they do it perfectly? No. As long as we have this human nature dwelling in us, there will always be problems there. But we should be making progress. We should be able to see over a period of time that there are things that we have improved on. That's what we're striving to attain. Now we heard a little about this this morning, so let me touch on it once again. They have a love for their fellow man. And that love, of course, certainly begins at the household of God. 1 John 4, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. 
I always advise church members never to get into business arrangements with other church members. Why do I say that? It's been based on many years of experience. And what I see and have found over the years is the reason church members can't get along with other church members in business relationships is because they expect the other person to be perfect. You deal with an outsider if you're in a business arrangement. Actually, you're not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, but if you're in a business arrangement with some other fellow and you're not under his control, you you don't expect him to act as a Christian. You don't expect the best. And when you're involved with a church member and then all of a sudden something goes sour, oh boy, that does not set well, does it? Because you think that that person is going to be perfect and going to, to act in a perfect manner. They don't. They can be just as selfish and bad as the next person. That's the flaw of human nature. No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwells in us and his love is perfected in us. Well, I can tell you, if we love one another, you know what we're going to be doing? We won't be straying at nets. I tell you, we'll be looking at the self. We're not going to be busy picking here and picking there and finding fault here and finding fault there and disagreeing here and disagreeing there. That's not the spirit of God. That's the spirit of Satan. The divisive spirit that does a lot more harm than good to anybody and probably the greatest harm to the person who is the critic. That's what we need to realize. 1 John 4, verse number 20. If any man say, I love God and hateth his brother... He's a liar. So, we have to analyze. Is there anybody we hate? We better be sure we don't. We don't have to love their ways. We don't have to agree with their lifestyles. But we, we certainly should not hate them. Matthew 19, verse number 19. I'm only going to read the last portion of this. It's actually found in the Old Testament just as well. And uh, you can find it in Leviticus 19, verse 18, so I'll just read it here. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. God does not say you have to love your neighbor more than yourself. But if you love your neighbor as much as you love yourself, I can tell you that'll be plenty of love. Boy, we, we cater to this self. I mean, it doesn't quit, does it? And uh, in 1 John 3, verse number 17, Here's an example. Whoso has this world goods and seeth his brother have need and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? Genuinely is in need and has had, has had some real difficulty and, uh, and, and needs help. Then we, is it, is it, is it, we should not shut up our, 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 our compassion to them. Luke 10, verse number 36. Luke 10, verse 36. Here's the whole example. I won't read it. I'll simply summarize it here. But you remember the story about the Good Samaritan? Lying on the wound, on the road, bleeding uh, bleeding and wounded. And the the, uh, self-righteous Levite went by. And these other religionists went by. and just They didn't want to touch him. They didn't even have a thing to do with him. And this other man came along there, a Samaritan. And he picked him up and he bandaged him and he took care of him. He took him to an inn and he said, when I get back, I'll pay for his board. 
And then Jesus asked the question. Now which of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, He that showeth mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, Go and do thou likewise. So that's a good example. We went over to um, Bend on Labor Day weekend because we wanted to do some fishing over there. And uh, to make a long story short, we were trying to keep ahead of the the storms and boy, we got it. By the time the hail quit there, it was about that high every place we were in one spot there. But we were driving down the road, and here was a Chinese man and his wife standing out there frantically waving, waving cars just went by. So we pulled over, and uh, he said, "Oh, thank you for helping." And he said, uh, "Yeah, I found out he lived up in Vancouver. He was from Formosa originally. He and his wife, and uh, she spoke a little bit better English than he did." But um, to make a long story short, I don't know how in the world they did it. They went off the side of the road somewhere, and they got up there experimenting. And I don't—I look at—I looked at the road, and I look, how in the world did they get there? But they had driven over some kind of a little rock, rock log pile, and then the logs caved in, and there their truck was down. The whole rear end of that thing was down, and they wanted us to go over there and pull them out. I took over and took one look at that thing. No one's going to pull them out of that thing. They had to have a wrecker. So we, uh, we came out the road, and uh, my son remembered there was a highway patrolman just up the road, about a mile had passed. And so we went up and got him, and he came down, and uh, the, the highway patrolman said, okay, well, he went, they went to take a look at it, and I'm sure he called a record. But I never saw him again, but those people were so grateful. Now, I, we were really rewarded. My wife and I were really re rewarded for that because uh, we got hailed out, we got rained out, and we were trying to drive ahead of the hailstorms, and, and uh, we gave up fishing and started for home, and we got out right at the south end of Davis Lake. I saw this brown object over here at the side of the road. I thought it was a deer. I thought he was going to just, I thought, you know, the way deer are, some they'll run right out in front of you. So I started slowing down, and this thing started running across the road, and it was the biggest mountain lion I've ever seen. Boy, its big old tail was behind it and it was pouncing across the road that's, that's the first that's the second time I've seen a mountain lion wild in, in, in the wilds that was that made the whole trip worthwhile to me so uh, you know uh, if we see an, we have an opportunity to, to help somebody let's do it but you'd be amazed how many times people will be stranded or something and people just go by and ignore it they won't stop and help them any well that's not the example of the good Samaritan all right now Here's the last point. They value the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. They don't take it for granted. Ask yourself this question. I'd like to give a sermon on this sometime. What would your life be like if you were missing two things? These two things you are missing. And I'm talking to those of you who understand the truth, who have been converted and you've been baptized. How would you like to have, number one, the truth taken away from you, and number two, the Holy Spirit taken away from you? What would your life be like? Would you want that to happen? I couldn't think of a worse fate. Your life would be absolutely meaningless and worthless after that. I tell you, don't ever sell the Holy Spirit short. Sure, we're usually not either using it or not given enough, whatever the case may be, to help us to really overcome as much as we would like to. But I'd say this way, what if you didn't have any of God's Holy Spirit at all? Because we're only given the earnest. 
You know, you read a Jesus Christ and you read a John the Baptist and it said they had the fullness of the Holy Spirit from birth. We just have a little down payment. How would you like to have that taken away? You stop and read about David when he was involved in this adultery and he wrote that 51st Psalm. And what's one of the things he said in that Psalm? Take not your Holy Spirit from me. He knew what the end result would be if that spirit were taken away. Don't ever sell it short. 1 John 4 and verse number 13. 1 John 4 and verse number 13. Hereby know we that we dwell in him. And he in us. Here's how we know. Because he has given us of his spirit. Can you say that? Well, stop and think for a moment. Are you different than you were before God called you? Are you a different person? You ought to be able to tell the difference. If you're different, you're a different person than when God called you. You have God's Holy Spirit because what else could lead you to a knowledge of the truth and then enable you to live up to it and begin to change you and to change your nature? It's a slow process. It's a struggle. But it's real. It's happening. And this is what God has granted us. Acts 5 verse 32. He gives that spirit to those who obey him. Is there anything in your life that you know you're not living up to? Is there anything in your life you know you're compromising on? Is there anything in your life that you know that you're doing contrary to God's will and you're trying to survive and succumb and, and, and uh, call yourself a Christian in spite of it? Maybe that's, the, and maybe that's the answer to the problem. He gives his Holy Spirit to them that are obeying him. Romans 5 verse 5. The love of God is shed in our hearts by means of the Holy Spirit. What is that spirit? 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse number 7. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse number 7. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. This is what he says. It's a, it's a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. And you know what that word sound means? It means a self-controlled mind, a disciplined mind. Not one that just runs helter-skelter and has no control of itself. And just gives itself over to every passion and lust that's in the human heart. And there are plenty of them there. Romans fifteen thirteen. Romans fifteen thirteen. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Brethren, that's what God has given us. Who are people prepared for the Lord? I hope I've given you a good answer this afternoon.